Oh, that's so you got funny. all these dudes in like '80s punk bands sitting there soldering boards and <laughs> putting together all these ham radio parts because that's how they were able to eat and pay rent. Welcome back to another episode of Struggle Municipal Library's podcast, All Booked, where we talk to you about books we'd like to recommend. And Sam is bringing a title today that is probably too cool for us. It is Corporate Rock Sucks. Yeah, the rise and fall of SST Records, which may sound kind of lame. You know, it's like, I don't care about these record companies, but it's a very interesting story. And that's kind of what drew me to it. I will say the title immediately made me feel ashamed because I was like, I think I only like corporate rock. That was, they used to sell t-shirts. I guess SST Records still sells t-shirts. It's kind of a shell of what it used to be. They actually still have those t-shirts for sale. That was their big deal to show that you were, you know, super cool. You had your corporate rock sucks t-shirts back in the 80s. So just for those of us who are uninitiated or not nearly cool enough, which major bands signed with SST back in the day? All right, bands you may know of course, nowadays they were they never they stayed on this label, but like Black Flag was mm-hmm. Greg Ginn, their guitar player, was the one who created SST Records, and like the Meat Puppets, Husker Du, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Junior, Soundgarden, Bad Brains, like a lot of bigger bands, mm-hmm. definitely in the nineties, like Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Junior, them were huge, and as was Sound, you know, Soundgarden was a rather large band, and they were Minutemen, like a bunch of bands that were, you know, in the punk realm or big bands as well, but mm-hmm. but the ones that became large, huge bands were among those. Yeah. So tell us about both the book and also The Fall. All right. Well, to start with, so it kind of starts with a story of, you know, your, your child prodigy, who is Greg Ginn. So at like eight, nine years old, he got really into ham radio stuff. And then by like (laughs) nine years old, the dude was making his own circuit boards, creating his own like transistor boosters and things like that. And had a small mail order business going by like 10 years old, was creating boxes and bailing them out. So that's why it was called SST stands for solid state transistors. Okay. So he actually started this business and had done all, you know, done this forever. And then later in life, he got into music and started a band, which was Black Flag, which was had a different name, but then it became Black Flag. And, you know, at the time, even punk rock in the world was still like the Sex Pistols, things like that, the Ramones. Mm -hmm. It wasn't what they were doing, which was a lot heavier, a lot faster, and kind of maniacal in sound, you know, and you could kind of get the music very much betrayed the truth that Greg Ginn was kind of a paranoid guy. (laughs) You know, you hear it in the music. You turn it on, you're like, yeah, this this came from a dude, the lyrics and everything. This guy is like kind of has some some issues with trust. And (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, so as they go out, they no record label put out their stuff. They keep talking to people and they got one record label. It's like, yeah, we'll do this, you know, EP or whatever. And they sit on it for six months eight months a year and finally they're like well another band down the shore you know in california put out their own record and they were like well, why can't we do that and so they talked to them and got the greg and talked and got the information and then put out you know they're all living in, in a, basically an abandoned church that they had all rented lived oh and gosh. practiced sounds in. very punk rock mm-hmm. yeah which which greg did live with his parents so he lived like a little step up <laughs> And, but the rest of the band was living in a church they rented out, and that's what they did. They all, like, bands practice there. If you ever see, like, they did a film, Decline of Western Civilization, which is 
kind of, you know, almost like a scare film film about like punk rock stuff. But, you know, they were literally sleeping in cabinets like they would open them up and then clear them out and put a mattress like a twin mattress in it. And people were like, that's my bunk right there. They open the door and it's like, there's that's where I live. That doesn't sound too different from the current housing situation in California. Right. Yeah. How things turn around. And so the reason I bring a lot of that up is to set up. They release their first record. Well, they get it and they release it, their first seven inch. And then the first thing Greg Ginn does, he sees his band, the Minutemen, play. And he's like, all right, we're going to put out your record. And it's like, these are dudes who are living like, in, in a church. Right. In a band church. And they're just, we're going to put out your record. I know we're starving <laughs> to death, but now we're putting out second record. And it's not us. And so that's kind of what they did. Then the third one was was Black Flag. And then they released mm-hmm. the Minutemen record. And then they started moving out to like Black Flag would play with people. And be like, man, I really like you. We, we'll put out your record. And they just started doing <laughs> all this crazy stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, the guys in Black Flag were very, basically, there were the two main guys, which was Greg Gamm was one of the other songwriters, and then their bass player was this guy, Chuck Dukowski. So he was the one who kind of revolutionized touring. Like, he came in, like, if, to this day, bands, I mean, even places like We Play are venues that were set up and routes that were made by these people. Like, mm-hmm. it created the entire network that bands started playing. Mm-hmm. So there were no avenues, and they literally would play just we're stupid like we're gonna play in the middle of nowhere nevada and then our next show is gonna be in oklahoma mm-hmm. and they would do stuff like that just because wherever we can book a show and we're gonna drive 18 <laughs> hours a day to get there and you know hope we actually pull it off and then over time they would find places between and mm-hmm. then build these networks up greg seems kind of like someone who wants more like he started with with ham radios and then he was like, I'm gonna make a business. He started making his own record and then he was just like, I don't, it doesn't even seem like he wanted to make a business. He was just like, I know how to do this and I'm going to do it better. Yeah, that was kind of it. And that was kind of the point. You know, they everything they did, they just went way. I think that was the point of what I was trying that meandering thing yeah. a minute ago was that they were always got into things like 100 percent and yeah. just did them. And they're like, we can do it ourselves. And once they started doing it themselves, then they would not. It was like, we don't need any help from anyone else. Yeah. Like, we're just going to do it for us so that was how they ran it you know and they kept running off which caused issues because then as they started doing that they started setting up the touring network and people were waiting for their records that they had recorded to be released Mm -hmm. but the band's gone for five months you know touring up and down the east coast and this was (laughs) pre-internet right and it's like well we can't really do anything until they get back they had some other people from other bands that were hanging out at the SST when they actually bought an office space and were living all the places they worked out of all their business spaces were also where they lived. <laughs> like they would seriously lay under their desk at night and sleep <laughs> Oh my gosh! and then wake up. And through all of this, they were still running the actual solid state transistor part of it. Oh, that's so you got all these dudes in like eighties punk pants sitting there soldering boards and <laughs> putting together all these ham radio parts because that's how they were able to eat and pay rent and stuff. Yeah. So that's why I say, you know, at first, and that's just the beginning, you know, but that's kind of how it, why it makes it more interesting in your average record labels. These were people who were made it almost like, they say it by multiple people here, it was almost like a cult that all these people got together and Mm -hmm. lived in these places and just, you know, (laughs) everyone lived there and everyone worked on everything. All the bands on the label participated at one point or another. They worked there. They hung out there. They lived (laughs) there. They were on tour. 
you know, it was just wild. So so how did Greg screen the different bands to decide which labels he would try to, or which ones he would try to sign to his label? It was seriously just, they would play with them. He'd be like, I really like that band. Okay. And he would walk up. There were no contracts. It was, was just Was it like, other people or was it just Greg? Like if Greg liked them, Other people sometimes would bring stuff in, but if he didn't like them, then... So that's one of the things that comes... We're jump, jumping a little bit ahead, but it's worth it. So one of the things was they had signed Screaming Trees, which was another mm-hmm. band that was big and nice, and Mark Lanigan, their singer, brought them a demo multiple times of this band called Nirvana. And he just like... <laughs> And he was just like, I don't like them. I don't, they're not what I I enjoy. No, like, I don't get it. And, you know, the punchline of that is the record that he would probably would have released would have been Bleach, which was the album before Nevermind, which Sub Pop sold and, you know, is, is still going to this day off the money basically from that record and some mm-hmm. other Sub Pop bands. But that was the one that really made them the money. So, you know, it, it had its, its, good points and it's bad points but mostly it was just you know if, if he liked you he, he would put out your record mm-hmm. and i also think once again we're kind of jumping ahead but it sounded to me when we talked about it briefly off the air that it was greg's trust issues that also kind of drove the label into a downward spiral ultimately right yeah and, i mean in some ways it's it makes sense. The one time that the, he was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. This people, Unicorn Records, which are tied in with them, already have a major label distribution thing. We'll team up with them. They have a studio. We can live at that studio <laughs> and we can record our bands at that studio. So like they're hanging out there and they just have the studio space. So to them, it cut a lot of the you know overhead off. Like we're already here. You can show up. And they had this dude spot that basically recorded almost all of the first wave records. Mm-hmm. So he would work at a record at a studio and, you know, they would record records like, hey, we're going to record from midnight to 5 a.m. And uh, so some of these records you're hearing were recorded and mixed in like five, six, eight hours. Wow. Like they came in and just did it. So when people are like, oh, you know, the quality could be better. It's like, well, you know, A, these records probably wouldn't have been made by anyone else. Yeah. And B, yeah, they did these entire records. Like they just showed up and basically played a live set in front of a microphone mm-hmm. and then sat there and mixed everything and did overdubs. and was So they were doing it like that. On their recording thing, I, I laughed because later they got bad brains and they started getting kind of bigger and they wanted to have a more quality record label, record made. Mm-hmm. So he got a guy named Ron St. Germain who was made, you know, done all sorts of huge bands. And so this was the conversation. I thought it was good to lay out. It's like, again, we'll give you $5,000, like St. Germain. Well, which song do you want to do? He's like, no, 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 no. That's the whole album. He's like, really? He's like, that's what we do, man. And so that was kind of it. So they had to bring even this pro producer was like, cool, we got to come in to the studio overnight and we've got to do this fast. Like this $5,000 gets you this much time (laughs) and like, let's do it. And they would show up. But, you know, luckily a lot of these bands were people who did it and they lived that indie. We're playing 250 shows a year living in a van. So by the time they showed up to a studio, they'd been playing these songs 250 nights in a row yeah, almost. And so they knew them back. Like, Husker Du would do that. They were famous for just like, oh, hey, we got this idea. And by the time the next record, the record was released, they're like, we don't even play those songs anymore. Like, we're already <laughs> on to the, We're on our next album now. The next record, yeah. <laughs> so it was really cool to see how all these bands grew. And then, like, Soundgarden came in, and they didn't like the deals they were getting from major labels. So they were like, hey, uh, you know, we always loved, all these people, in the, especially on the West Coast and stuff, Black Flag East Tour, like relentlessly mm-hmm. in the early days up and down. Like there's a million stories like the Soundgarden, the Melvins, even like Nirvana, Screaming Trees, all the bands, that, most of the bands that ended up on SST where people was like, I went and saw them. Then I was like, oh my God, I want to do that. And I went and bought a guitar and started a band. <laughs> 
so there were a lot of the bands that was interesting that saw them started bands. And then, you know, it might have been a bit of ego, but Rick Reagan was like, they sound great. We should get them. Yeah. But if you really listen to the catalog, like many of the bands don't sound anything like Black Flag for the most part. Like hmm. the Minutemen were like the second band they released were like this weird jazz kind of. They were a punk band because they were in the scene, but they were really like more noisy, like free jazz. Mm. All their songs are like a minute. Like their first seven inch they released was eight songs in like seven and a half minutes. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so they really were Minutemen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just. So that was the thing. The guy had, he had a pretty broad yeah enjoyment of music i mean like and for research for this I actually did go see the meat puppets last night that's for research <laughs> you know they were pretty like jam bandy like they would show up and you know back when you didn't play all this stuff and they would break into like neil young covers in the middle of their set in the 80s while they're mm-hmm. playing like you know to kids with mohawks and stuff so they weren't always appreciated yeah <laughs> but you know they were just some dudes from the desert who you know were into the grateful dead and also punk bands and stuff and mm-hmm. but greg again loved that because he was really into like guitar playing and like you know all that noodling so he signed them and they were a band that got really big because like when they did they were the anyone who may not know but knows like nirvana or anything they were the band that guested with them on the unplugged and nirvana did oh me like a fire a lot of the big songs off of that album that unplugged album were actually like the meat puppet songs so oh interesting that it's just really interesting because it i guess it, it makes very obvious the pros and cons of building a business purely off your passion like there's gonna be a lot of things that you do really well because you're putting so much more effort but then there's gonna be things that maybe you should have taken a step back and been like i don't like nirvana but everyone else seems to be liking nirvana and i do run a business but it doesn't seem like he looked at anything like that well in his defense like even when nevermind came out it was not a popular record Mm -hmm. There's a great story, if you ever get a chance to read, where they played Trees in Dallas, where, like, the venue refused to let them out of the booking, even though they could have played, like, a huge room. So they're playing, like, a 600-person bar. It was packed. It was, like, chaos broke out. Like, the, there were all sorts <laughs> of fighting and things like that. So, you know, no one really knew at the time. Yeah. But other people around Seattle were kind of like, like, this band's, like, really catching. Like, we really like this band. Yeah. So they were people started playing with them, and you know, but he just, nope. Yeah. So it was when I brought up Unicorn where they were living. So that was when they got with them and it just caused a bunch of issues. Everything fell apart. Like they lost a ton of money. They went like for like almost like a year where they couldn't release a black flag could not release any records Mm -hmm. or anything. And they had a backup of other records because of this lawsuit they were caught in. Oh, gosh. So it did cause a mess. That's goes back to where like greg stopped really trusting other people even more because it's like the one time i trusted some you know (laughs) the one time i opened my shell somebody stabbed me (laughs) and so you know it's just yeah so what do you think kind of marks the turning point to where sst started to decline well we'll go start with like 89 89 they released 78 records oh my god huge amounts of band yeah and these are all like i mean they got a bigger warehouse at the point they're seriously the band their friends are doing this still Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of they went and got some interns but they all got kind of pulled into the cult so it's all people they knew so they had released more albums than even major labels released at the time yeah and they were bringing in lots of money and then we started having the shift from records into CDs and stuff like that, which caused a lot of distributors to collapse. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I have $500,000 tied up in this distributor. They declare bankruptcy. Suddenly they don't owe me that $500,000, oh. even though they have, they've sold all of these records we paid for. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And so they started having that happen quite a few times where distributors would collapse. And it was kind of cutting in their bottom line. Yeah. And then the band, like even... 
it was all kind of volatile. So at one point, Greg Ginn drove Chuck Dukowski out of the band and then six months later hired him back to SST to work as like their booking manager. But not in the band anymore. Right. That's so, interesting. You know, yeah. So it was seriously, you know, like getting a divorce with someone being like, but hey, can you, you can come, still live here if you can want to <laughs> be our accountant? So, you know, it was always kind of just hanging by the thinnest string. So, you know, there you go. There's your if you're looking for drama, there's your dramatic points like they're mm-hmm. there. There's relationship drama. All this is in this book. <laughs> We've gotten a lot about like the meat of like the actual story. But how is the book written? Is it written chronologically? Like it is, is there chronologically. And a good point to show you about that kind of also captures how Greg Ginn is. Every single chapter is SST versus someone else. Mm. So it starts out like SST versus Hollywood because they couldn't get into the Hollywood scene. Mm -hmm. So that's why they end up making their own records. And then, you know, and it moves on like versus the media because they started having issues with like media coverage where they thought cops were showing up to shows and beating up kids and like, we'll show them, we'll invite the media out and they'll videotape the cops beating up the kids and be like, it's not us. You know, they're showing up, beating us up. And then because, you know, they were still frightening and, you know, people, adults didn't want to see their children with green hair in this Mm -hmm. 80s late 70s so they were showing up and still like look at these weirdos starting this fight and they deserve to get to beat by the cops so (laughs) they kind of had that issue and then it just keeps going like versus mca versus unicorn which was a big one then versus hardcore because black flag started kind of that was thing they were also adversarial like black flag got big in the hardcore scene so they started doing really slower longer songs and jamming out to an instrumental stuff and like spoken word and they would do like <laughs> anything they wanted to do just and a lot of it was very much to agitate their audiences <laughs> so it was funny you know same deal like we want bands that sound like rock and roll on a punk rock label cool here's sonic youth <laughs> you know they're beating their guitars with drumsticks and doing all this weird like textural stuff and you know dinosaur jr which is huge solos and po- kind of poppy rocky stuff mm-hmm. and so they kept doing stuff like that where it's like oh this is what you want from us well cool here's what you get <laughs> but it made for you know well-rounded music fans who listen to them because you got you weren't getting just this one you know most labels especially like independent labels all sound like one thing yeah because they realize where their bread is buttered and they don't want to go anywhere else yeah we don't want to bum anybody out so you know they've got like i said sonic youth noisy husker do moved into like almost like a poppy rock band mm-hmm. and when i say poppy rock i mean poppy heavy rock like not yeah. not like pop rock like kenny Loggins or something but like, <laughs> but like more rock and roll and then you yeah. know even like me puppets and you know bad brains which was like this all black dc band hardcore band and you know was huge influential started that whole scene but mm-hmm. you know a lot of people wouldn't take chances on them and you know they did they're like cool we're gonna put this record out because they're an amazing band that was kind of how they based it off of mm-hmm. Not what if we think it'll sell. It's like how amazing is this band? <laughs> we think people need a chance to hear you. <laughs> yeah, and that was it's kind of cool because it yeah. it all sounded different. Mm-hmm. But then it also kind of became you know like anything you get too big and the star burns and you start becoming what you were against. Yeah. So by the end, they had this band Negative Land that did all these weird sound collages, and they did something with like can't even remember. It was like U two and maybe like. Uh, oh no! Oh, so was that the lawsuit and, uh, they were in? Casey Kasem, yeah, and they had done something where he, apparently they caught Casey Kasem like cussing at somebody, and they thought it was funny because you know he was like so they added the it. voice of the top forty. So they did this whole thing, and oh. yeah, so then you two sued. They had this whole argument, but then Greg Ginn sued the band because he didn't want to have to pay the damages for yeah. them using music that wasn't theirs. 
So then it became, and that was kind of the ter- where it, that was the tipping point where it all kind of fell apart after that because bands started jumping ship to majors because grunge blew up, mm-hmm. and you know you went from eighty to seven or it was either eighty seven or eighty nine when they had the you know seven hundred plus records to by like the ninety two ninety three it was just this huge drop off. Mm-hmm. So this does seem like it's kind of got a niche like fit for an audience, but apart from like music fans or people who are particularly drawn to punk, who else do you think this book would appeal to? I think it's anyone who wants, you know, it's it's very much like how does this if you like those shows, how does this tap and you know what is it the show you know how is this made it's yeah. good for that because like i said it's written in a very narrative thing where it's, everyone's like a story it's not written it's one where you can pick up and read for 30 pages 20 pages 15 depending and you know you're done you don't have you can sit the book down and come back a month later and you're not really miss you know it's not like it, it's left on a cliffhanger mm-hmm. so like here's stories from each era so i think it's anyone who likes a just real life things b you know drama see how people do stuff i mean i, I read plenty of books like you know i read the theranos thing i couldn't have cared really less about thing but the it was recommended it was a good story mm-hmm. it is it's set up as a good story and a lot of it's like if you told me if this wasn't a nonfiction book i would be like yeah that sounds like a fantastical story that the people <laughs> <laughs> pulled this off so i mean it's all in there and if you're even remotely interested in music or how it's made and how people run record labels in a less annoying way and if you look at you think the book's too long it's okay the last third is when everybody's basically quit sst and it's basically just falls into a history book so when it gets to the sst versus history you can just check out and you're fine <laughs> you're not missing much because <laughs> once it becomes just greg ginn left at the label and stuff it gets very tight-lipped and there's not enough yeah information to go on so are there three albums that you think people should listen to as they're reading this book well, you albums got- that were produced by sst <laughs> yes oh yeah the three I mean- particular ones <laughs> Oh, man. Three is tough. We got to go with uh, Black Flag's Damage. That was our first full length. That was really, really good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was the Henry Rollins era right when he had joined. Because they had three singers before that, but never released a full record. That was when they finally were able. I mean, Meat Puppets 2, like, it's just called number two. It is oh, uh, it's the one that <laughs> all the songs from Nirvana's Unplugged was taken from. And then, and I want to be edgy, but like Minutemen, Double Nickels on the Dime is a double record that's really... It's like 44 songs or 46 songs in like 48 minutes. <laughs> Whoa. Well, they're consistent. Yeah, no, no. They definitely did not change much. But then, you know. They were much better at sticking to their time frame than we were. And in the original yes. <laughs> aspect of this of this podcast, it was 10 minutes. No longer. <laughs> right. It's like, this guy's the, still talking. The Minutemen, though, never <laughs> went above a minute. <laughs> no, no, no. But the next band, you know. And that's in, too. Like, Minutemen had a sad ending in that their mm-hmm. lead singer guitar player died in a car wreck, which is a thing that's covered because they actually helped run the label as far as, oh, lab- okay. as labor went. Like, they oh, all, no. like, all of these bands worked at the label. So that's an interesting, too, to see how this community came together mm-hmm. to create this. So if you're into community activism, that's also a good kind of like a like a record co-op. It really kind of was. And it was just wild how everyone there. I mean, even, you know, that's something I left completely out. But Greg Ginn's brother is, goes by Raymond Pettibon, and he is a like acclaimed graphic artist. And he used to just draw things and throw them on the floor and they would come in and that's where most of their artwork came like, early oh, this on. Looks cool. <laughs> yeah, they would just come in and grab his art. He just mm-hmm. Don't ask me what, you don't tell me what to draw, but if you find something you can you use like, it. you can have it. And that was how they ran it until they had a falling out because, you know. Of Greg course. Because Greg versus like, the world. Right. You are not allowed to use any more of my stuff. But, yeah, I mean, he is 
like pieces of his art go for hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars. So, I mean, he's so, cool. so it was a pretty, you know, talented family, but they, he's also has like issues with paranoia and things. Too. <laughs> oh no. It runs in the family. All right. Well, thank you so much for putting the spotlight on a book from our new book collection. Which month did it come out? April? Yeah, it just came out in April. Yeah. This okay. is a brand new book. I feel like I, I just rely on you for knowledge about, like, music history. Right. Now, that's another <laughs> thing, too. You want to be good at Trivial Pursuit or mm-hmm. Jeopardy? Grab this book. There you go. Or grab a librarian, but not physically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And stay tuned next week for more fantastic book recommendations. Bye. Bye.